John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, read as follows. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. There was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, You're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but... He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Will you pray with me, friends? Lord God, we bow and we ask that you would simply add your blessing to the reading, to the study, to the work that we do in your word this day. Would you by your spirit, do a work in our hearts that we cannot deny. And I pray today, God, you will leave us having encountered you in your word. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever noticed how good the human heart is at making excuses? Are any of you good excuse makers? Are any of you married to one? Got Kelly's attention. We love to shift blame for our actions away from ourselves onto other things, right? We blame our health. We blame our parents. I especially blame my parents. Sorry, Mom. We blame our finances. We blame the government. Anything we can blame in order not to have to take responsibility for our own actions. Well, as we pick up our study of John chapter 5, we're about to watch a man who has encountered Jesus. And Jesus takes away from this man any excuse he may have ever had not to follow God. 
And Jesus is going to put that man in a position to have to decide whose side is he on. Will he follow Jesus? Will he oppose Jesus? And I'll give you a hint today, a little spoiler. Most of you will not like the actions of the man that we saw Jesus heal last week. We just read the background of the story that we're picking up. It's a festival in Jerusalem. It's a Passover uh, celebration. And a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years was lying near a pool. And Jesus, demonstrating his power and his compassion, spoke to the man, healed him of his lifelong ailment. Boom. You're well. And last week we saw that this scene depicts much of the human condition. We're broken in our sin. We need the grace of Jesus or we will die eternally. And Jesus, by his power and his kindness, can make us well. So as Jesus asked the man by the pool, I'll say to you, do you want to get well? Let's find three points that are going to challenge us to stop making excuses and to make up our mind to get off the fence and follow Jesus. Point number one, beware of making excuses. Beware of making excuses. Peek with me at nine and ten. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So the paralyzed man, he was healed. And he did what Jesus told him to do. He got up, he took up his bed, he walked away. So far, so good. John then tells us that the day that Jesus healed the man was a Sabbath day. And if you are at all an experienced reader of the Gospels, you should have alarm bells going off in your head, right? I mean, when you hear, and it was the Sabbath, do you not go, "Uh uh-oh? Because time and time again in the Gospels, we see Jesus in conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And it was particular that he was often in conflict with them related to their demands for how people are supposed to behave on the Sabbath. God created the world, as you guys know, in how many days? Six Six days. It took God six days, and that was because he was taking his time. And the Lord set apart the seventh day of the week as a day of rest, began to be called the Sabbath. When the people of Israel, the nation, made a covenant with God, agreeing that they would follow God's laws as his unique people, God gave them particular restrictions as to how they were to behave on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. In order both to honor God and to show kindness to their hired workers, the people of Israel were forbade any work on the Sabbath. Well, the people of Israel knew, they knew that the Sabbath day was a command for their good. God did not forbid the people from doing works of needed mercy on the Sabbath. You could treat a person's wound if they were hurt on the Sabbath. You know, if a mom went into labor on the Sabbath, they went ahead and delivered that baby. They didn't say, no, you've got to wait till Monday or Sunday. The point is, like the, the Sabbath, 
The Sabbath was simply not supposed to be an ordinary day for the nation. It was a day that Israelites would demonstrate that they trusted in God by obeying a command not to work. I'm going to trust that God will provide for me if I only work six days instead of all seven. And the command made Israel look very different than the surrounding nations that did not take that day as sacred. And the Sabbath command pointed people toward a day to come when we would rest from working toward righteousness by trusting in Jesus Christ. But the Jews didn't know that part yet. Well, unfortunately, the religious teachers had come up with a plethora of rules about what people were allowed to do and not do on the Sabbath, and those rules far exceeded the restrictions of God. And of course, they had rules that they had added to the law of God, and they said that nobody was allowed to carry any sort of burden on the Sabbath day. So when our legalistic friends see a newly healed man carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath, they call him to account. Just, just what do you think you're doing? Now, let's be clear, because I don't want you to be confused about this. The man was not violating in any way the heart of God's law. Yes, God forbade his people from working on the Sabbath, but the point is... You don't participate in your normal daily occupation on the Sabbath. You don't do typical work. Farmers were not supposed to harvest grain on the Sabbath. Carpenters were not to build things on the Sabbath. They were to demonstrate that they trusted the Lord so much that they would forego work on that day for God's glory. But the paralyzed man, mat carrying was not his occupation. He was just going home. And going home while carrying a thin straw mat is not any sort of violation of the command of God. Now look at 11 and all the way to 13. But he answered them, the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So the formerly paralyzed man told the religious teachers, it's not my fault I'm carrying my mat, I'm just following instructions. The man who healed me, he's the guy you got to talk to about violating the Sabbath, not me. And the teachers respond, they want to know Who is the one who told you to carry your mat on the Sabbath? And don't you think it's fascinating, folks, that this man had absolutely no idea. Jesus isn't standing right there next to him. There's a crowd around, so he can't just see Jesus and point him out. And this man never once bothered to learn Jesus' name. Let's pause. I'm going to learn really two things here in this point. First, I want you to take note that the man who was healed neither knew nor had faith in Jesus. He didn't ask Jesus to make him well. Jesus, by Jesus' own power, for Jesus' own purposes, immediately, supernaturally healed the paralytic. Let me ask you, how many of y'all have ever been exposed to a charismatic faith healing ministry. 
Any of y'all ever seen one? Have you ever, ever go to like one of their events or see them on the TV? People on cable TV with big hair and lots of makeup? Flashy suits and rings on pinkies and stuff like that? They'll tell you, you can be healed if you will release your faith and speak the words of your miracle. If you have strong enough faith and if you'll prove how strong your faith is by giving a financial gift to me and my ministry, you'll be healed. Friends, that's a scam. That is a God-dishonoring lie. Faith healers love to tell people, if you prayed with me, and you didn't get a miraculous healing, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You ever hear that? But doesn't this passage show us that in this instance, faith was not in the least required for Christ to be able to heal whom Christ wishes to heal? The only question is the power of Christ, not the power of your faith. Faith healers sometimes say, oh, well, yeah, you've been healed. You just don't know it yet. It's going to be a gradual thing. But in the Bible, when Jesus heals people, it happens right away, and it's absolutely scientifically verifiable. Y'all, if you run across a person that says to you they've got the power to heal people, especially if they're asking you for money, or they're telling you that if you have just enough faith, you will be healed, but it's on you and your faith, beware. In point of fact, the man Jesus healed here did not only lack faith, he lacks character. You look at his words, he's quick to blame other people for any part of his situation. When Jesus asked the man if he wanted to get well, he didn't say, yeah, of course I want to get well. The man just pointed out, I don't have anybody that'll put me in the pool. When the religious leaders asked him, Why are you carrying a mat? He didn't say, guys, rejoice. A miracle's taken place. I've been healed. Instead, he's quick to try to get them to blame the healer for him carrying his mat. Now, here's the real point of application, though. That faith healer stuff was just helpful for you. Beware making excuses. Listen to me on this. Excuse making. And blame shifting is embedded in human nature. You are a blamer, I just guarantee you. If we don't watch out for that temptation, we'll find that we let that nature put us on a path that leads away from God. Jesus comes and says, Do you want to be well? Do you want to know God? Do you want to be in God's family? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want to be God's child? Do you want eternal life? And sometimes instead of us saying, oh yes, God, more than anything, we go and tell God all the reasons why it's not our fault. Sure, I'd like to believe God, but I haven't seen enough evidence. You know, I'm not as bad as that person over there, God. Leave me alone. I don't like the concept of calling things sin, so I must not be guilty of sin. I would believe in you. I would obey you, but my life circumstances really aren't what I want them to be. So until you make things better for me, I'm going to stay where I am. 
on and on the excuse-making temptation goes. But we forget we're talking to the God who sees right through us. God's not impressed by our excuses. While he loves us and has a great deal of sympathy for our pain, God's not about to tell us that we're not responsible for how we behave or what we believe. He knows us better than that. And every last one of us is fully responsible for ourselves. Jesus, in the encounter with the man, takes away his excuses. How? He does so by healing the man. Jesus told the man, pick up your mat and walk. So the man did. And no longer did he have his disability as an excuse for how he lived, felt, or believed. Listen to me, because I think I have the right to say this to you. A disability does not give you the right to tell God that you won't follow him. The excuse was stripped away here. Now let me assure you, neither you nor I have a valid excuse to oppose God. We have no reason to reject the word of God. We have no reason to reject Christ's offer of salvation. We have no excuse to refuse to bow to Jesus as our Lord every day. Are you tempted to make excuses for your behavior? Are you tempted to blame other people? Are you tempted to blame God for why you're not following him? Beware. God will not let your excuses stand. Well, will the healed paralytic learn? Let's take a look and see. Point number two, repent before facing God's judgment. Repent before facing God's judgment. Verses 14 and 15. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This feels a little weird, doesn't it? An odd change in the tone of the story. We don't know exactly how much time has passed since Jesus healed this man. We do know that the scene has changed. We're not near the pool. We're on the temple grounds. And amidst the crowds, Jesus re-enters the scene to warn the former paralytic. First, Jesus tells the man, take note, your body's been healed. Do you get that? That is an astounding miracle. Look, you who have been paralyzed for nearly four decades are now well. A man who'd been crippled for a lifetime is walking. This is mighty and glorious. And we'd like to think that it's going to lead to a great deep gratitude. But then Jesus says to the man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, we've talked about this already. All human sickness, all human frailty, all human death is the result of the curse of original sin in our world. And you also know, don't you, that sometimes 
people will sin and cause themselves physical harm, right? If, if, you, if you drink yourself into oblivion, cirrhosis of the liver is a natural consequence of drunkenness, right? If you are a violent, fighting person, you may suffer an injury in your brawling tendencies. And those injuries are the result of sin, no doubt about it. And there are times in the Bible that we see that somebody actually suffers an ailment because simply of sin. But I don't think that Jesus is telling this man that his sin in the past had caused his paralysis. What I believe Jesus is doing here is simpler and more spiritual. The man needs to stop sinning. He needs to repent or he's going to die spiritually forever. All of us sin, and all of us sin in a variety of ways. Some of our sins involve, sometimes on purpose, sometimes accidental acts of rebellion against God. Sometimes we do the things we're not supposed to do. Sometimes we refuse to do the things that God commands us to do. Sometimes we sin by act of our will and our mind and our thinking. We sin by thinking that we get to be the ones in charge of our lives, our own masters. What's that last line of Invictus? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. (laughs) Let me tell you something. You are not the captain of your soul. From the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus preaches, we must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All people have to let go of trust in themselves. All of us have to stop thinking that we get to be our own masters. All of us have to stop thinking that we can fix our spiritual condition on our own. And yes, we must stop going against the things God has commanded. If you want to be forgiven by God, you've got to turn away from sin and self and turn to God for mercy. But what if we won't? What if we won't repent? Look at how Jesus warns the man that he healed. If the man doesn't stop sinning, something worse will happen. Is Jesus saying to this man, you're going to be paralyzed again? I don't think so. What Jesus is warning against is worse, far worse. And you might say to yourself, what could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's worse. Jesus is warning this man, if he doesn't repent by turning away from sin and turning to God for mercy, he will die and he will experience something worse than paralysis. He will experience an eternity in hell under the righteous wrath of God. I would like to point out to you that I had no intention whatsoever to plan today's Sunday school and today's sermon. I had nothing to do with this. This is the timing of the Lord. 
It may not be popular in our culture to talk about hell, but we've got to understand that hell is a biblical doctrine and an absolute reality. Hell is the proper and just punishment that people face for sinning against God. Hell is where those who are not forgiven by God face eternal torment, perfect justice for their evils, for their sin, for their crime against God. Keep a couple simple truths in mind. God is holy. God is infinitely perfect. And any opposition to a God of infinite worth is an offense of infinite magnitude. And if justice includes the idea that the punishment must fit the crime, and it does, then the punishment for sinning against God in any way must be infinite in its scope. Hell is a true place of infinite torment that those who die in their sin face. And since it's a perfect judgment for an infinite offense of going against God, hell must last forever. So that was the Sunday school class just done in a minute. If you aren't joining us on Zoom for Sunday school, you're missing good stuff. Now, let's look to our own lives for a second. We, like this man, have an incredible knack for making excuses for who we are and what we do. We hide behind the circumstances of our lives. Many of us have some very painful things that we've gone through. We've got hurts, we have struggles, and we've not always understood the reason why. Let me say to you, God loves you. But he will not let your circumstances serve as an excuse for what you do. When Jesus healed this man, you'd have expected that his life would have become immediately full of devotion to Christ. You'd think that once his pain and his disgrace were gone, he'd have been thrilled to follow the Lord. But he wasn't. Had he had a heart to follow Christ, Jesus would not have greeted him with such a stern warning. Jesus would not have called him to repentance like this if this guy was ready to follow. Today, what are you hiding behind? Is there something that you cling to that you feel like excuses you from having to follow Christ? Is there something you hold to that you feel makes it okay that your life isn't fully devoted to Christ? Some pain in your past, you say to yourself, that's got to be healed, or I'm never trusting God. Listen carefully. You must not use that stuff as an excuse. God loves you deeply. God loves you more deeply than any person can love another. And he wants you to have ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction. And he offers it to you. 
But the only way for you to receive ultimate joy and satisfaction is for you to turn from sin and give your life to Jesus Christ and his glory. God is holy, God is righteous, and God will punish all human sin. Your only hope to be right with God is to let go of sin and turn to Jesus for grace. And thank God he's given you this chance, even today, even right now, even where you sit, to come to know Jesus. Turn from sin, trust in Jesus, call out to him for mercy. And if you know Jesus, which I guess most of you do, God has given you an opportunity today to embrace Jesus and to let go of sin and to once again yield your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. Do you understand that right now you can sit where you are, bow to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm turning from sin. I've been making excuses. I'm sorry. And I want to follow you faithfully today. The formerly paralyzed man's response to Jesus shows us the condition of his heart. Jesus warns this man, a man he had healed, to stop sinning. This man needed to change. He needed to turn to God for mercy. He needed forgiveness far more than his body needed physical healing. And what's the man do? As soon as Jesus finishes talking to him, he runs to the religious teachers to tell them Jesus is the one who healed him. The man who formerly couldn't walk runs to tattle on the Savior. There's no sign of sorrow over sin. There's no sign of wanting to turn his life over to God's leading. There's no sign of gratitude for Jesus. There's just a man who wants to point towards others instead of dealing with God himself. What about you? What do you think about Jesus? Would you run to Jesus for grace or would you oppose him like the world around you? We're going to come to our final point here and we're going to find that there are only two options when it comes to Jesus. You either worship Jesus or you oppose Jesus, but there is no middle ground. Point three. Come to Jesus to come to God. 16 to 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I'm working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Bible tells us here the priest began persecuting Jesus because all this took place on the Jewish Sabbath. And Jesus could have responded to their persecution in many different ways. He could have pointed out the Sabbath rest was a rule to rest from your daily occupation. And since this man's daily occupation was not mat carrying, he was not participating in any Sabbath breaking labor. Jesus could have argued that God wants good to be done on the Sabbath and they should see that this healing is something incredible and glorious and good. He could have called them them hypocrites because they condemned this man while they're willing to do other things that look like work. He could have pointed out that the priests had to work on the Sabbath in order to keep the temple lamps burning and in order to offer the sacrifices. 
Jesus could have done many things, but Jesus chose to answer the Jews' objections in a way that really got the conversation going. Verse 17, Jesus said, My father is working until now, and I am working. Without question, Jesus means God when he talks about his father. You know, the Jews had no problem with thinking of God as the father over Israel, but they were not used to anybody making that kind of personal claim to God as his own father. And then Jesus points out that God works on the Sabbath. Does that surprise you? It's a very true statement, right? God is the one who holds the universe together. If God really rested from all labor on the Sabbath, the universe would cease to exist every seventh day. But think of the things that happen on the Sabbath. And only God can do them. Children are conceived, souls are saved. The world keeps turning even on the Sabbath. And the Jewish teachers, they knew this. God didn't take every seventh day off. But to the Jewish teachers, God working on the Sabbath, it's okay. God's above the law that he gave Israel. God's not bound by that that strict regulation. But for Jesus to claim that he can work on the Sabbath because his father works on the Sabbath, that is to the Jews unthinkable. Jesus just claimed to be equal with God. Jesus just claimed to be God. In case you think I'm misreading what Jesus said there, notice that the Jews respond in exactly that way. In verse 18, the Jews want to kill Jesus because they think he's uttered the ultimate blasphemy because they think he has claimed to be equal with God. Now, if Jesus was not intending to claim to be God, we would assume that the next statement he makes would be to tell the Jews, hey, fellas, you've totally got me all wrong. That's not what I was saying. But that's not what Jesus is going to do next. Instead, what Jesus is going to do is give the Jews a set of reasons why they must believe him to be God. Those are in the text that will follow what we study today. You know, before this happened, there might have been a bunch of people hanging around the temple who were undecided as to what to think about Jesus. Maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a healer. Maybe he does really good party tricks. Who knows? Many people would have been out to get Jesus. Many people would have believed in Jesus. And I'm guessing there were many undecided, many half and half. Jesus' statement in John 5, 17 and the follow-up in 19 to 47 will prove to the crowd that they cannot take a neutral position when thinking about talking about Jesus. Why, think about this with me, why can you not be neutral? Why can you not be indifferent about Jesus? The answer is because Jesus claims to be God. You can't look at a man who claims deity and sit on the fence about him. Either he is God or he's not C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You've got to decide, friends, what do you believe about Jesus? You could say he's wrong about his claim to deity. You can call him crazy. You can call him an idiot out of his mind, a fool. But I doubt very seriously any of you think that. You could say that Jesus lied. Make him out to be totally evil, totally misleading. But if you're not willing to call Jesus a lunatic or a liar, you had better be willing to believe that Jesus is the God he claims to be. And if that's true, you must worship Jesus and serve Jesus and glorify Jesus with every last ounce of your life. Where's your heart today? Is it making excuses not to follow Jesus? You blame Christians you've met in the past. They pushed me away. Do you blame your hard life circumstances for keeping you from serving God? Stop yielding to excuses. Because not one of them is good enough for the God who loved you so much that he took on humanity, lived a perfect life, suffered like no other man before or since, died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and who makes an offer to you now of free eternal life if you will only put your faith in him. Even as a Christian, ask yourself, are you allowing excuses to come between you and total commitment to Jesus? Are you claiming to be too busy, too afraid, too unqualified to do something substantial for God's kingdom? Today, decide you will stop making excuses. Your life in Christ has no higher purpose than that you would serve him. You exist to glorify Jesus. You exist to do his will. You exist to be his. And when you do what you were created to do, he will satisfy your soul. Again, as Jesus sort of told the man that he healed, as he told the Jewish teachers, I'll say to you, there's no sitting on the fence with him. Follow Jesus. Live for Jesus with everything you've got. Stand for Jesus. No excuses. No middle ground. Let's pray.
Father, we bow. And I believe, Lord, that we have, in your word, seen a confrontation for our souls. You identify Jesus as God the Son. You command us not to take him lightly. You've offered salvation. You've offered grace. What I would pray now, Lord, is that you would challenge us to faithfully turn from sin and follow you. For some people who hear this message, that might actually mean that they, for the first time, ask Jesus to be their Savior. I pray they will. For other people who are already believers, it may be time for them to stop making excuses for not yielding to you as Lord. God, I pray that you will change our lives, build your church, and show your glory this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.